Reading is one of the few creative art forms where we enter the mind of somebody on a deeply intimate and personal level across time, across cultures. You're concocting in your mind what the person looks like, and they become something you invent. As a child, she found refuge in books, which she called her friends because her family moved so frequently. She says reading and writing are linked, and somehow writing chose her, and she became a writer. Stephanie Hahn, next on Long Story Short. One-on-one engaging conversations with some of Hawaii's most intriguing people. Long Story Short with Leslie Wilcox. Aloha my kako, I'm Leslie Wilcox. Stephanie Han was born Stephanie Misuk Yu, but goes by her maternal family's name. A resident of Kaimuki, Oahu, she's a teacher with a doctorate at Punahou School in Honolulu, and she's a writer of poetry, fiction, and nonfiction, much of it about one's identity in multicultural settings. Dr. Han is the author of Swimming in Hong Kong, a collection of short stories. Her father was one of Korea's top scholars before he came to the United States to attend university, becoming a medical doctor and research scientist. Her mother was raised in Kunia Camp in central Oahu, a descendant of the first wave of Korean immigrants to Hawaii. Stephanie Han's parents met in the San Francisco Bay Area, and after they were married, lived all over the United States, fueled in part by their wanderlust. Where do you call home? Now Hawaii is home, and in a sense, I think it always was a spiritual and familial home to me. We just simply moved around the continental U.S. I've lived in every place except the Pacific Northwest because my family was peripatetic. We were itinerant, and I have been as an adult. But this is the one place we always came for weddings, funerals, family birthdays, and gatherings. So I would say, in a sense, if I could call one place an idea of home, this would be it. Hawaii was where I could have a sense of belonging, where I could have an Asian face, but I could speak English and it wasn't a big deal, um, where I saw different kinds of cultures and people interacting in a relatively peaceful way. And this was a, a contrast to growing up in the mainland in certain areas where my family were kind of these pioneers in the Midwest or in the South or even in certain areas of New England. Did you experience racism or was it people who simply just didn't know what to say to you and said the wrong thing? I think it was both. You know, my mother grew up in Kenya on the plantation and so when kids were kind of chicken fighting and and kind of bullying me and beating me up when I was in third grade, she wasn't going to have that. She was, she um, immediately asked um, somebody in the Korean community whose father knew judo to take me on as a student. (laughs) So she was not a a hovering parent in the the sense that she approached the bully. She prepared you to approach the bully? Yes. Okay, so what happened? So because she grew up, you know, watching boxing matches and wrestling in the Kenya gym. And so, yes, I was supposed to be a good Korean-American daughter, but I needed to know how to fight back. And so... um, we, me and the bully, we had it out in front of the drinking fountain. He was a, a head taller than me, and the kids gathered, and, and I don't even know how it came. After a month, I was very confident after judo lessons for one month. I obviously felt I could take him on, and um, 
you know, he hit me and I punched him back and then we were hauled off to the um, by the school librarian who now I know they must have thought it was really hysterical because <laughs> I was a head and a half shorter. And boy, girl. I mean, usually, yes, usually boy, boys girl, don't take shots exactly. at girls, right? Um, so this is then, a bad bully. Yes, and then he was crying and I was not. I was just in shock and just paranoid that my mother would um, get mad at me. And he never bothered me, nor did anyone ever bother me at the school again. And I was never physically bothered like that again because it was, it's all psychological, right? It's how you carry yourself. Why did you move so much? That was my parents, I think, their adventure. So for my mother being, growing up pre-statehood, um, you know, her adventure of travel. I mean, they, my family traveled a lot overseas, too. But her adventure was in the mainland. And for my father, as a immigrant to the United States, this was also his adventure of seeing America. That meant you, you switched schools a lot. I switched schools every year until I was nine. That's a lot. What you get used to is you know, making friends and you also get used to leaving. It prepares you for different kind of relationships and different kinds of ways of navigating. And it it also obliges you to be more open. And what it did was it made me closer, I think, to my family and to my parents and to hold on to things that were permanent, let's say, like coming here, seeing grandma in the summer or seeing my cousins here. This became a kind of a permanent idea. Did you have any tricks about how to make friends as a kid when you were starting a new school? Um, No, and I think it did become difficult, and it's what propelled me to become a reader and a writer, because um, at a certain point, I think, you know, we were often in these places like Iowa, where there were not a lot of Asian American children, and I remember telling my mom that I had troubles making friends and she said well if you read a book you'll always have a friend Um, and this had to do with how she was I think and she was a bookworm and she was a mom who um, you know sought out intellectual and creative things and we didn't talk as much about feelings we could find those through books and things like that so um, you know so books became my world. Books became a way that I could make friends. She was right. Books became a path to understanding and to figuring out how people behaved. And from reading comes writing, an idea of expressing personal narrative. I think I've heard you say that uh, your mom taught you the importance of creative expression. Your father taught you never to quit. Which, yeah. is, which came in very handy when you're, you're a writer seeking publication. Yes, so that was um, definitely my father. So there's a saying he used to tell me, fall down seven times, get up eight times. A really perfect example of it was um, me with math studies. So when I was in ninth grade, I went off to boarding school at Phillips Academy Andover. I was a straight-A student prior I get to Andover, everybody was a straight-A student, so I really struggled, and I was getting a, I think I was failing math, and so my father and mother said, we're tired of you, you know, calling us up at, um, you know, every night crying about your math homework, so you come back for Thanksgiving, so I came back for Thanksgiving, I did math six to seven hours a day with my father, and um, flew back, I passed the 
exam. And then I stepped off the plane in December, and my dad said, we're not, we're, we're conquering this math thing. And so I did math with my father. I went to work with him six to eight hours a day, every single day of my three-week holiday. I would sit there in the gas station in the front seat of the car while he's pumping the gas, doing math problems. Um, I did the entire math book over Christmas. Now, did you want to do that? Did you um, resent that? Uh, after, uh, at first, I resented it. But then after a while, I liked it. Like, I still, can, I still know the quadratic formula to this day because he made me write it down 27 times because he said, if you write anything down 27 times, you'll never forget it. What it showed me was that you don't have to be um, good at something. You can persist, and you don't have to quit. And then I went back, and I went from being a D student in math to two A's. What does your dad think of your career? He seems like a very success-oriented guy and goes by the numbers. And being a writer is not going by the numbers, especially as a female. Yeah, my dad, um, human being status is... Um, granted upon a master's degree. So now I have a PhD, so, you know, it's okay. Don't you have two masters? (laughs) Yeah, I have two master's degrees. I had a PhD, the first PhD in English literature. Literature from City University of Hong Kong. And you do a a lot of professional teaching as well. Yes. So I consider myself a writer and educator. And I think, you know, my father was, uh, you know, he was a research scientist and a university professor too, so he's proud of that. You know, so in a sense, although it wasn't in science and most of his family were medical doctors, even my my aunts who were 85 years old in Korea were medical doctors in Korea at the time, which is quite radical for women. Um, but so now, you know, he knows I teach and I write, and it's, it's something that is para- parallels his interests. Stephanie Hahn's award-winning writings are influenced by the books she read growing up, as much as by her life experiences. Her narratives often center on female protagonists who deal with issues of race, gender, colonialism, and above all, identity. You said your friends were books. Yeah. And, and you do live other people's experiences through oh, books. Oh, yeah. Like, my early experiences were just you know, like in Iowa, reading Laura Ingalls Wilder, I used to ask my mom why she didn't wear a bonnet and churn butter. Like, why? Because <laughs> that's a real mother. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I sent away to the Laura Ingalls Wilder home for photos of Laura Ingalls Wilder. So there are family photos of the Ingalls and Wilder family with my family photos <laughs> because they be- it became such a part of how... I was trying to understand where I was living. Did you watch the TV show, too? Yeah, but I didn't like the TV show as much. That was kind of just a shortcut. And I I was one of those, you know, that didn't match what was... That was in, you know, on the shores of Silver Lake. That wasn't in the the second (laughs) book. You know, I could really... Who's Michael Landon, Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, you know, no, Pa didn't play the violin like that. You know, I was really... I could be very exact about it. Um, And there were some... Also, some things that were not quite, you might say, kosher about those books of when it was written. You know, their treatment, her treatment of how she saw Native Americans 
or how Paul was doing the, the darky kind of dance where he was wearing blackface. And I didn't understand this as I was reading it. So I find it sort of interesting, you know, how, you know, you read uh, one book to open your mind. And I did need those books when I was little to understand the farm children that I was going to school with and their background, and and then how later you read them differently. Mm-hmm. So, um, but yeah, you know, that's when I would, you know, I'd say, you know, can, can you, can we have apple pie like farmer boy, you know, eating, you know. Yeah, but reading does, depending on what you read, does teach you empathy, or, or at least your, yes. the ability to identify with somebody else whose maybe outer behavior is off-putting. Because yes. you don't understand it or you don't think there's a reason for it. But when you read a book and you see what's going on inside. Yes, because reading is one of the few creative art forms where we enter the mind of somebody on a deeply intimate and personal level across time, across cultures. Even when we're seeing a movie we're looking at somebody from the outside in, right? We're looking at their face. We're not looking inside their brain. So when you're reading, we're entering somebody's very intimate thoughts. It's that magic. And heart. Yes. You know, how they're dreaming, how they're feeling. And sometimes, you know, when you're looking at a picture um, or illustration, you might initially, you could have these reactions. You could be put off by their clothing or something. And you might not be able to enter them in the same way. But when you read something, you're concocting in your mind what the person looks like. And they become something you invent. So reading also propels us to imagine, and it works a different kind of imagination gear in a way. And we we relate that to ourselves. Like, yeah, I remember I was riding a bicycle. Yeah, that's what it felt like. This person must be riding a bicycle in the same way. Yeah, you know, and it becomes something else versus, you know, I love photography and I love film and I love, you know, video and, you know, all the all these other kinds of visual images. But it's it's something else. You're outside in. That's a great point. What are some of the books that have made the most difference to you in reading? Well, I would say Besides it changed. Yeah, it changed over the course of time, right? So, um you know, I read, you know, Song of Solomon by Toni Morrison. When I was a teenage uh, girl, then I read Maxine Hunkingston, The Woman Warrior, and that blew me away, I would say, really the opening sequence because it was the first time I could see the picture. There is a woman of color, and she kind of looks like me. She's Asian descent. And look, she wrote this book. And look, this character is not, you know, is fierce and is a warrior and is running through the woods and doing these things. And that was really eye-awakening. And I love Jane Austen. Years later, I read The Makioka Sisters by Junichiro Tanazaki in translation, which is very similar to the Austen book. And, And that was the book that my mother told me to read. And I could see how she transposed ideas of, you know, protocol and manners and this, and how they came through to my upbringing. My narrative has always been something that's been changing. Um, um, Narratives that were 
um, I was told and then tried to imitate. So I think about this idea of the stories that were maybe told to, let's say, me through a religious or philosophical structure, which were Confucian virtues, right? Which were, Confucianism is built on the pillars of five relationships, right? King, subject, teacher, student, husband, wife, and almost all of them are um, hierarchical, except friend to friend. But there's a very uh, strict hierarchy that organizes a lot of Asian culture, and that was the narrative, in a sense, that I think played out for me or continued to play out in a lot of my life. There was also narratives of folk tales that I was told. So a traditional, it's a Japanese folk tale was also told to Korean kids was Peach Boy, which is, I'm not sure, do you know that? Yes. And I'm sure you're familiar with this story. I grew up with that story. Yes. (laughs) And he comes, you know, he comes with a peach to this uh, older parents and he fights, you know, he makes friends with the dog, the pheasant and the monkey, he goes off and he kills all the monsters and he comes back with wealth to his village and he's the hero of the story, right? And this is a typical Joseph Campbell um, journey, mythic uh, myth of the hero which crosses cultures, right? But there really is not the, we don't find the myth of the heroine. And Campbell had said that's because the wisdom that is had, women always have inherently. And Campbell was writing and speaking at a different time period because women do need a narrative. What you said before reminded me of something. Uh, I was fortunate enough to interview W.S. Merwin, uh, and he said um, when, when life is going along you, 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 pretty well, you, you tend to read prose. But when you have something awful happening, some, some emotional thing, what do you do? You read poetry. poetry. Is that true? Yes, that's totally true. And I write poetry um, when I have no words. That's what I say. And then I write prose to try to make a linear sense of an issue. As an adult, Stephanie Hahn has lived in many different places around the world. She kept moving in part because of the adventure of experiencing different cultures. But that was not her only motivation. You told us how um, your, your, your family moved around quite a bit because of your father's career when you were a child. But you continued to move around as, a, yes. as an adult. It set the pattern. So I thought, so that's part of the, how I became an expatriate, etc. It, it set a pattern where you think moving is normal. Um, it's strange because there's a different skill set involved with staying, right? And so that's, to me, um, this, is, this is now my question, too, of staying. And, you know, I'm, this is my home now. And so this is, these, this is the question of staying. And, um, but, yeah, you set the pattern because, you know, and you, what you realize is there, there, there are many people who actually do this. We're just, we're in, maybe we don't talk about it quite as much or we're referring to one place as the home, but a lot of people are rather itinerant. It seems to me that you've been in a number of first of situations. You might have been the first Asian girl in a class or, I mean, you've done so many, um, so many activities in different countries. Uh, 
what have you learned from that? Because I, it's not surprising to me that you became a writer, somebody who was already good in English. And uh, generally, writers keep their distance. They, they're detached. Yeah, I think um, what I learned is that you have to be open and you have to be curious to different experiences. And you also have to be tolerant. Um, and I think being overseas um, for different periods of my life also opened that up. And what I also found is language, speaking different languages matters, but you really need an open heart and you need, um, you need to be able to laugh with somebody. You need to be able to eat food. Um, you need to listen to their music and maybe dance a little. And that becomes more important than often than, um, let's say, exchanging literary ideas. And when do you know it's time for you to move on? Or, or in the past, what, how did you figure out? Was it out, um, outwardly directed or did it always come from within? No, sometimes people move because they think moving will solve things. But moving doesn't often solve what you... Th it could solve temporarily a job, but maybe the, the job wasn't really what needed to be solved or a question about yes. this, right? So it's a, it's a way of distracting yourself yes, in part. Right. And you know, there's more you know, it's there's the adventure of being out versus sometimes if you stay in one place, the adventure becomes of going in and going still or going deeper. So I you know, I um, I've had people tell me, you know, um, I don't think you can come to necessarily any more wisdom traveling and moving than you can come from being in one place and going deeper. You might find that you can still come to very similar ideas of people and behavior and spirit. And some of the people I consider the most wise who I seek counsel or friendship or guidance from are people who are in one place because they came to similar ideas and then moved and came to a different way of seeing things that were incredibly wise. Interesting. Well, one thing about staying is that you, if there are issues, you you have to either work them out or or hole up in yourself. Yeah. I mean, and generally people do either, I mean, I would hope people who stay find a way to work things out. Yeah, and this is becomes the retreat of a writer, too, right? Reading and writing for me um, was always a bit of a social, personal retreat. So I didn't necessarily, you know, if the outside became too strange or difficult or I just would read more, or I wrote more, <laughs> which I, I don't necessarily advise to everybody. <laughs> well, why have you moved as an adult, um, repeatedly? Yeah, mostly it was, I think it was work and opportunity and a, and a desire to seek and a desire for adventure. So I think that was the phase that I was also in. And um, there's like a whole community, you know, if you're an expatriate, that's what you do. Uh, you, you just, you move 
from place to place. And you place always often. find people like yourselves. Mm -hmm. And, and, and it, it becomes a community. It is a so community. That is, how is do you a find community. people in that community? Um, you know, they can initially be much more often welcoming and opening, you know, open to people because everyone wants a place to live. Everyone knows you need employment, so people come rushing forth with opportunities or jobs or places to live. They know you need help with this because it's kind of this strange pioneering community, right? Whereas if you often move into a community where people have been entrenched for a long time, they're more closed because you're an outsider. And then the peculiar thing is, you know, expatriates, they often never really occupy the place that they're in. They live in the peripheral of wherever they are, and that is the community. It's being on the periphery. That's interesting. So perhaps at this point in your life, that is still your home? Um, no, I'd say it's, it's funny. That's why I think I ended up here, because I don't have to always be on the periphery here. I do have maternal family and maternal roots here. So it allows me to step in here. I didn't attend school here, which makes, you know, Hawaii is very rooted in people's young, younger years of schooling. Where did you graduate yes. from? But, um, you know, my son is now local to here, and my family is here in that sense, or I should say some of my older relatives. So um, I can be both an outsider and an insider here, and maybe that's just right. At the time of this taping in 2019, Stephanie Hahn is teaching at Punahou School and lives in Kaimuki, Oahu, where she also continues to write. Mahalo to Stephanie Hahn for sharing your stories with us, and mahalo to you for joining us. For PBS Hawaii and Long Story Short, I'm Leslie Wilcox. Aloha nui. I don't think people choose to be writers. I think writing chooses you. And then writing becomes a compulsion. Reading and writing are very linked. And um, when it is a certain level of a compulsion, then it flows through you. And you feel at that moment, this is what you were meant to do. And you draft it very quickly. Um, and it's almost as if your body is a kind of vessel for what the words are supposed to be. And there's other times you sit there and you're just miserable and you, you try to run away from the desk and you decide at that moment you need to clean your room. But, um, you know, so it, it varies and you just have to, you know, kind of sit your butt in the chair. For audio and written transcripts of all episodes of Long Story Short with Leslie Wilcox, visit pbshawaii.org. To download free podcasts of Long Story Short with Leslie Wilcox, go to the Apple iTunes Store or visit pbshawaii.org.